and welcome to the ITGP podcast. This is episode four and is part of a six-part series to bring you discussions on some of our hot topics including business continuity, cybersecurity and some softer business management and leadership skills. We collaborate with industry experts to produce high-quality publications about best practice frameworks, compliance and technical subjects. This episode is presented by Preston Bucati. Preston is here today to talk about data privacy in North America. Please note that this podcast is an adaptation of a webinar which took place earlier in the year. Okay, thank you all for joining. My name is Preston Bucati. I'm a consultant with IT Governance USA, and today we're here to talk about the GDPR, recent news out of European courts, and why North American organizations need to comply with this law. So in turn, what they need to know about data privacy, right? What they need to know about changing regulations, either in the EU or here in the United States, and how we can stay on top of this topic, keep abreast of legal issues, reduce our liability, and get back to business as usual, right? So today, that's what we're here to talk about. We'll do a brief refresher on the GDPR before diving into some more recent topics around SHRIMS and some US laws around data privacy. But as a brief introduction, again, my name is Preston Bucati. I'm a consultant with IT governance with a background in law, so I've actually got my law degree. Although my goal today, unlike a lawyer, is to try to hopefully give you guys some useful advice that you can take and apply to your own business model so you can learn how these laws work, what they require from you, and what you need to do to comply. So you see various other things. I teach courses at IT Governance, do a lot of my time spent on actual consultancy and implementation of information security programs, whether those are certified programs under ISO 27001 or just more generally working on compliance stuff. I've certainly worked on the GDPR and new US laws like the CCPA to no end. With that being said, we've also got a brief word from our sponsor here, right? Now, IT Governance is the entity that's hosting this conversation for us today, so it wouldn't be fair for me to skip forward too much without saying what IT Governance can provide and offer, right? And IT Governance really prides itself on a history of consultancy in the information security space. You know, going back years with some of the first original implementations of ISO 27001, and expanding that onward as this world has greatly increased. Because as you all know in your personal lives, we've used more technology, certainly more since the 90s, the early 2000s. The use of technology has proliferated. The use of data across those different technological tools has proliferated. And as a result, global societies, whether in your country, in this country, or perhaps everywhere around the world, are starting to create new laws around how that technology and how the data is meant to be used. So our goal always is to try to teach you how to fish so that you can help protect data and do things compliantly wherever you are. So today's agenda, first, like I said, we'll do a brief refresher on the GDPR. I don't wanna to spend too much time on that because frankly, the law is a couple of years old. And if you've come to this webinar asking yourself, do I need to comply with GDPR, you're probably in the wrong class and you need to go back to the beginner level. This is really more for the advanced students that are out there that already know some of the basics around data privacy law, because really what we want to talk more about, right, is that SHREMS 2 decision that came out recently and how that impacts legal data transfers between the EU and third-party countries like the United States. From there, we're going to look and say, okay, well, if we have to deal with this GDPR thing, how does that make my life easier over here, right? Because guess what? For those in the advanced class, you should know this by now, every single state in the United States has a data breach notification law, and increasingly these states are coming out with privacy and cybersecurity laws, like the New York Shield Act, or like the California Consumer Privacy Act, potentially the CPRA or the CCPA 2.0 that will go to ballot in California this November. So there's a lot of changing laws in this space. And my goal over the course of today's conversation is to hopefully show you that if you have to deal with the GDPR, start to take steps to deal with it compliantly today, right? Don't stick your head in the sand and wait for guidance from the courts. 
There are concrete, cheap, and easy steps you can take today to reduce your liability. And if you do that, it might help cover some bases here in the United States as well. So that's what we're going to get started to talk about. And of course, as always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to email them over. You see here our uh, email address. You can also post things in the chat on the GoToMeetings tool, and I can get to those. If we get a ton of questions, we'll send those out later, along with recordings and copies of the slides in case you guys have questions in the future or want to discuss anything with me personally, because guess what? I'm a nerd on this and I'd love to bore you to death with more data privacy law and discussion. So first, like I said, brief refresher, what is the GDPR? Well, it's a European-based regulation, so it applies across the EU and it governs how businesses have to collect, process, and store personal data. So you see there from the slide, what it actually has done is given individuals greater rights, right, more actual control in the way that their information is used. I was reading a study this morning, and in the United Kingdom, it's estimated that for one human being, approximately 30 companies have data on that person, right? So think about that. You, your data is just alone today at 30 different companies. And that's before you get on Amazon to start buying stuff. That's before you get on your next Zoom call. That's before your kids browse Facebook on the computer at home, right? So our data has spread everywhere. And the purpose of this regulation is to try to balance the scales between consumer and company, right? We've got these companies collecting this data, using it for a million different reasons. In my experience, no offense to the sales and marketing, Sometimes they don't even know what the data is being used for, right? They're collecting all this data and they're using it, storing it, saving it, but it might not be accurate. It might not be of value. It might be out of date, right? So this law has put in place a bunch of different requirements on companies. And what I often tell clients here is, for those of us coming from an American mindset, you would expect the law to have certain clear requirements, right? Almost like a checklist. That's not the GDPR, right? The GDPR is not a prescriptive list of things you can and cannot do with personal data. It's more of a programmatic model for data compliance, right? So again, it's not necessarily saying do this and don't do that. It's saying that you have to incorporate a risk-based approach to data protection. You have to understand the risks that your activities pose to individuals and their rights and freedoms as a human being in line with the data you use. You also have to think about the risk as a company, right? What types of data are you dealing with? There's a fundamentally different balance between a Facebook that collects and processes millions of data elements versus a small storefront that's operating in more of a local jurisdiction that maybe only handles a couple thousand pieces of data, right? So a lot of times it comes down to the three Vs, as I call them, volume, velocity, and variety of data. That's what the GDPR is getting you to do. It's saying, as a company, we want you to sit and think about what personal data are we collecting? Now, how much do we have and how much do we need? Let's start to understand where it goes, who we give it to, what else they do with it, where it's stored, if it's stored securely, all that kind of stuff, right? So again, I'm not trying to bore you with the details of the GDPR because if you have not heard, the GDPR actually took effect in 2018. So again, if you're just wondering, what the heck am I doing? You're a couple of years behind, and that's not a problem. Stick with us. We can hopefully bring you up to speed. The first question for a company to try to figure out is, hey, does this law actually apply to me, right? Always, always a critical question when it comes to legal liability, because oftentimes people will get suckered in assuming they have to do work on these issues. But the first question is, do you even fall jurisdiction to the law? With the GDPR, it's a pretty simple analysis. The two things for you to think about, number one, are you doing business in the EU? Because guess what? To be blunt, if you're physically there, somebody can come knock on your door, right? So you have to deal with the laws if you're physically there or if you're registered and doing business there. The other way that this law will apply to you is if you're processing the data of EU residents. So long story short, if you are either physically located in the EU or you deal with the data of Europeans, you are going to need to confront the GDPR, whether in full or in part. So again, pull your head out of the sand, 
stop pretending that this won't happen to you because it will and it is and start to prepare for what this law means for you, right? So the other big question that people often ask under the GDPR, there are questions around this idea of an EU representative. I don't mean to say that we're all gonna focus on registration rules under the GDPR here. Again, there's tons of different rules and requirements from the GDPR, and that's not necessarily the purpose of today's presentation, but this is one that confuses a lot of folks for uh, those operating abroad. You'll remember on the past slide, I just said that the law applies to you even if you are not physically in Europe, right? Even if you are located in Denver, Colorado, like I am, if you're processing the data of EU residents, you've got to deal with this law, right? You are dealing with their economic market, their data. As a result, you must comply with their rules. One of those rules is that you have to have a local point of contact, right? And that hopefully makes sense to everybody here in the United States. It's the same thing as a doing business or registered address, right? So for most corporate organizations here in the States, where is your technical legal representative? In Delaware, right? A lot of companies are registered in Delaware, even though they might not physically have an office there. So this is kind of that same idea, right? The idea is even if you don't have a physical office over in Europe, you should have some sort of local point of contact, right? A phone number that people can pick up, somebody who knows the language and the culture, and they can, for lack of a better word, handle all of your issues for you. Now, that's not to say that this person is responsible solely for GDPR compliance. You see that bullet on the last list there, right? This is really a representative of the organization, almost like a local mouthpiece, right? They are able to spread the word on how you deal with data privacy laws. In turn, they are able to take customer feedback, complaints, uh, any sort of findings or actions from regulatory authorities, they're basically like boots on the ground, right? They're your local point of contact. They help hold the records, but they are not solely responsible for compliance. Oftentimes an area that trips up American businesses, right? Because as a part of this requirement, as a part of this law, you have to have some sort of local point of contact. So it's whether you physically do business there, or if you don't, having some sort of representative who can serve as an intermediary between customers, data subjects, regulators, and other corporate entities. Now, this is an increasingly sticky subject under the GDPR, this idea of a DPO or data protection officer. I think this originally started under the GDPR as, an, as a way for companies to help monitor their compliance, right? Sort of having an internal objective party who's sitting there worrying about data privacy issues, right? So less of a compliance manager or a general counsel, but more of a privacy expert who can advise the organization on their requirements under data privacy laws like the GDPR, and in turn, monitor that compliance so that if the company is not following the law, right, they're taking steps that actually subvert privacy, the DPO has requisite levels of executive authority, reporting to senior management, that they can step in and actually fix that issue, right? So again, this is not like simply staffing a compliance associate or, or putting another hat on one of your existing employees. The data protection officer, as required under the GDPR, actually has certain requirements. They need to be independent. They need to have an executive level of reporting. And what's been interesting, the case law on this topic has increasingly shown that the data protection officer should actually ideally be someone outside your organization, if possible. And the reason goes back to that level of objectivity, right? Having a layer of checks and balances. The idea is that if your data protection officer is your employee, well, they might look around and say, hey, I'm doing a great job. There's no privacy issues. As a matter of fact, I deserve a raise. I'm doing such a good job, right? Well, we want to avoid those situations. We want to have a level of objective risk management across the organization. Like any good corporate entity, we don't want to rely too much on the personalities of our staff. We want to rely on good business judgment. And so increasingly, courts in the EU, in Germany, France, and in other places are saying that your data protection officer should actually exist 
as someone outside the corporate entity, not simply a member of ministerial staff, but either an executive senior manager who sits at a level of reporting that they can work directly with the C-suite or an outside party who is totally outside the lines of your corporate structure and therein can demonstrate that objectivity and independence, right? Because it's a separate company that's working with you as a partner, but they don't necessarily have to listen to you when you tell them what to wear, right? And that's the idea. We don't want a situation, wink, wink, nod, nod, Facebook. We don't want a situation where employees are doing something that violates privacy laws and senior managers are either unaware or tacitly accepting what's going on, right? We want that data protection officer to be able to step in and have the power and authority to say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't right. And something else needs to be happened. It needs to be fixed. So you see there the bottom point kind of very much in direct contrast to the last slide, whereas your EU representative is really just a local point of contact and they are not responsible for GDPR compliance. The DPO is more on the hook for that issue, right? And certainly that makes sense by, by virtue of the title. They are the data protection officer, and as a result, they are the main point of contact for all data protection issues, including breach reporting, working with supervisory authorities, and any sort of responses you may send to data subjects, right? Data subject access requests, requests for deletion, requests to restrict processing, et cetera. So that was just a brief, brief overview of the GDPR. Again, my goal is not to get too much into the weeds on the GDPR, just reminding American organizations that, hey, look, this law probably applies to you. There's some procedural hoops you need to jump through. But the biggest thing on our radar as Americans this year under GDPR is this guy, Max Trims, and his recent court case. So for those that aren't aware, let me kind of paint the picture for you. Years ago, the US and the EU had a data transfer agreement called Safe Harbor. And under that framework, the two regional entities were allowed to transfer and process personal data. There was a agreement, right? So this framework had some formalized rules, but basically that's how it worked. People could transfer data under Safe Harbor. Well, in 2014, a guy by the name of Edward Snowden quit his job at the CIA or NSA, I can't remember exactly, and he basically told the whole world, hey, guess what, guys, if your data is going to the United States, there's a lot of creepy people like me that can have potential access to that data, and I don't think that's right. In turn, Europeans didn't think it was right either, and that's ultimately what has led us to the discussion today. Some of those revelations are the genesis of GDPR, and they also led to the original invalidation of Safe Harbor. So this guy named Max Schrems considers himself a privacy advocate, a bit of a, a champion of privacy rights over in the EU. He filed a lawsuit under the Safe Harbor Agreement, and ultimately that agreement was invalidated. It was found that, hey, this is not good enough. It actually doesn't protect European data when it's in the United States. We need something new. The new thing they created was Privacy Shield. And you see there, it came about in July 2018, just in time for GDPR. And it was the same basic idea. It was a data transfer framework that helped govern the transfer, handling, sharing, and use of EU residents' personal data while that data was in the United States. Basically what happened, guys, is the EU courts sat down and dreamed up a data transfer framework and they said, if data is transferred according to these rules, it should have adequate protection while it's in the United States, right? And so even though the surveillance program in the United States may create issues for data here and there, ultimately, if it is processed under the terms of this privacy shield agreement, it should have an adequate level of protection. It should be protected just as much as we would expect it to have in the EU. And so the FTC here in the United States monitored and administered the Privacy Shield, right? If you wanted to participate, you signed up on their website, you had to jump through some hoops, pay a small fee, but ultimately it wasn't that big of a deal. Until there was this little election a couple years ago found out that uh, Facebook was sharing some data in a way they maybe shouldn't have. And so all these Europeans started wondering, hey, wait a minute, what does this deal with this privacy shield? 
all of these agreements used to be in place. It doesn't look like we're getting this protection. And so ultimately, Mr. Schrems turned around and he filed another suit. This time, he was actually focusing on standard contract clauses. So keep that phrase in your mind, SCCs, right? So Max Schrems is complaining about SCCs, and that ultimately worms its way through the European courts. It started in Ireland, where a bunch of companies, the U.S. tech companies, have their legal headquarters overseas. So the court case was filed in Ireland. It routed all the way up to the CJEU, the Court of Justice for the European Union, right, at the top of the food chain. And that court came out with a ruling here a little bit a while ago, about July, August. And here's what the court said. They said, we know that we were called to investigate the validity of standard contract clauses, but frankly, we're not gonna do that. What we're going to do is we're gonna look at this privacy shield thing. And what they came to determine is that current data practices in the United States, mostly in use today for national security and surveillance, are incompatible with the rights and freedoms of European citizens when it comes to privacy, right? Privacy, a, a actual right for Europeans iterated in their constitution, a little bit different here in the US, we've got a little different approach. And so what the Europeans said is, hey, look, these FISA courts where data can be requested and sequestered and no one else can participate, these NSA surveillance programs, these executive orders that allow the executive branch of the US government to basically subpoena data without anyone's knowledge or feedback, that is not cool with us anymore. And you can see, as iterated on my slide, they basically said that the lack of rights that European citizens have in those arrangements, right? The fundamental point being they don't have an ability to really stand up and understand what's going on with their data. They don't have a way to push back. They don't have any method of redress. Well, that means that ultimately that these Europeans don't have a good level of protection, right? If data from European citizens is going to be transferred to the United States, even if it's transferred under Privacy Shield, it's not gonna be protected the same way it would be in Europe. So data in the United States is treated in a fundamentally different way as it would be in Europe. As a result, we've got a disconnect, we've got a discord, and so as a result, if data is transferred to the United States under Privacy Shield, it does not receive an adequate level of protection, and therein, Privacy Shield is invalid, right? Because they basically said, even if you transfer data under Privacy Shield, that doesn't mean the US government isn't gonna spy on it. So, Privacy Shield was invalidated. Now, in my mind, I told you all just a second ago, keep this phrase in your mind, right? SCC, standard contract clauses. Well, you remember that that was the point of the court case. We didn't come here to talk about Privacy Shield. We came to talk about standard contract clauses. So Mr. Max Schrems was probably scratching his head, but the court addressed the issue and they said, look, we know that you asked us about standard contract clauses, and we know that we actually replied and gave you an answer on Privacy Shield, Here's where we stand on standard contract clauses. Ultimately, there is the same issue because if you transfer data to the United States, no matter how you do it, it's not going to receive an adequate level of protection. However, that doesn't mean that individual parties to a contract cannot boost the contract to help ensure an adequate level of protection, right? So again, in my opinion, my distilling of this court ruling, they basically said, if you transfer data to the United States, it's not gonna receive the same level of protection as it would in the EU. And as a result, that data transfer is invalid. You cannot do it. Certainly cannot do it under Privacy Shield. That's invalid and not good enough. You may be able to do it by virtue of a contract, but the two parties to the contract are gonna have to sit down and kind of hash out this issue, right? How is the data recipient in the United States going to ensure an adequate level of protection, right? So ultimately, at the end of the day, those of us in the Americas, how are we gonna get around Section 702 of the FISA courts? How are we gonna get around Executive Order 12333, right? If the FBI comes knocking, what am I gonna tell them? So as a result, 
I'm sure some of you are scratching your heads. I think many of us have been doing the same thing for quite a while, right? This has left us in a bit of legal uncertainty because the courts has basically said there are no particularly strong bulletproof ways to transfer data from the EU to the United States. You certainly cannot use Privacy Shield. You probably cannot use contracts unless you do more work, but we don't know what that extra work means or what it looks like. So everybody's kind of stuck in this weird waiting room. And what's worse is that the courts know that, right? And so far there has been a great amount of complexity and uncertainty on this topic. European courts have indicated that they will honor the ruling of the CJAU and that they will start to prosecute American companies that are transferring data by virtue of privacy shield or standard contract clauses. On the flip side, the FTC here in the United States has released statements saying that the privacy shield is still valid and that all of the requirements to participate in that program still apply. So if you have privacy shield, you may not wish to let it lapse although others would argue what's the point of maintaining it because you can't use it in Europe, right? It's a lot of confusing chaos. We don't really know what's going on. Well, at IT Governance, we've sat down and tried to think about some options for you. And this is the point of this slide, right? So this is me just kind of talking about how do we address this issue of transferring data between the EU and US? Well, you see here on the bottom left of my graphic, I'm trying to indicate that maybe your approach is to challenge the government, right? And certainly some companies here in the United States have done that, like Microsoft in the past. The idea being that, hey, Europe, you can transfer your data to us. And if we are ever met with one of these requests for data that you have indicated you're not a fan of, right? FISA court warrants, executive orders, what have you, we will actually stand our ground and refuse to give data to the U.S. government. So in that way, hey, if you give data just to us, it will be adequately protected. We promise that we will not give it to other people without bringing you into that conversation. So that's an option, right? And uh, I can't see anyone's faces on this call, but many of you are presumably wincing or shrugging your shoulders a bit, right? I would argue, unless you've got a couple billion dollars in the bank, you're probably not going to be in a very strong bargaining position in that argument, right? It's going to be you versus the United States government. And statistically speaking, you're probably going to lose, right? If they got Al Capone, if they've gotten everybody else, I don't think you're enough of a mastermind to outsmart them. It may be an option for you, but it's certainly not a long-term solution. Now, compare that on the bottom right, right? I've indicated that maybe notching up on the privacy scale, although perhaps not doing much by way of actual security, you could continue relying on standard contract clauses with the addition of some extra safeguards, right? So you could basically take the court's lame advice that they've offered today and try to bolster your contractual positioning so that you go back to these parties in Europe and say, Hey, look, if you transfer data just to us, according to the terms of this contract, we will protect it, and here's how. The uncertainty there is what's gonna be good enough, right? And that's sort of the issue. You can start to put in place safeguards today. There's certainly some guidance and rulings from courts, like I said, in Germany and France. There's some steps you could take, but in my opinion, that's only as good enough as the latest and greatest lawsuit, right? The next time a company with standard contract clauses finds themselves on CNN, right? The next time Facebook or Google has a data breach, you can bet money that Max Schrems is going to come after those companies. And a matter of fact, he already has. So Max Schrems has a nonprofit organization, uh, you know, sort of an advocacy rights organization called uh, NOYB, None of Your Business. And he has already filed suit against 101 companies here in the United States that are continuing to process data internationally by virtue of standard contract clauses. And you've heard the names of some of these companies, Facebook, Google, and others, especially the work they do in that advertising space around like buttons and cookies and analytics. Much of that data is shared internationally by virtue of company contracts that have standard contract clauses. 
And so the Shrimps organization has already filed suit against 101 of those companies to basically say, you saw the court ruling and you're not doing anything about it. What's the deal here? And a lot of those cases are being set up through the Irish courts. The Irish court system is also being hammered to pursue this more vigorously because, like I just said, many American tech companies have their legal headquarters in Ireland. And so advocacy groups like NOYB and many others across Europe have been starting to hammer the Irish Data Protection Commissioner and say, hey, this is really all falling into your backyard. You need to step up and do more here. So you can start to expect more vigorous litigation um, and more aggressive enforcement of these rules, certainly in the jurisdictions we're familiar with, like Germany, France, Belgium, and others, but now increasingly in Ireland as well. And then we've got this Brexit issue in the UK, right? That's throwing in a nice layer of complexity on an already crazy year. So now on the top left, I discuss encrypted access control. My idea here is as we go up and to the right, we are getting actual security and actual privacy. We're not just putting words in a contract, but we're actually putting technical controls in place. And so some of the thinking is that, well, one of the ways you can ensure adequate safeguards of European data is actually building in technological safeguards, right? And so the logic for me is that you either do full-blown end-to-end encryption, right? Up there in the top right, that's what I wrote that for, end-to-end encryption, so that really the only people who see the data are the customers at issue, right? The Europeans and everybody else as the data sits in transit on your systems or at rest on your servers, it's inaccessible to your team, your personnel, or to US government personnel who may wish to access that data. Uh, maybe dialing the notch back a little bit is some kind of access control where encryption is still used to provide a level of protection but there's different access rules so that it's clear about which ends of the tunnel can actually see the contents of the data in the tunnel, right? And so ultimately my point with this slide for those attending this webinar, I'm not saying this is the end all be all solution. What I'm trying to demonstrate here is that the courts have left us in a position of legal uncertainty. That does not mean that we can simply sit around and do nothing though, because doing nothing is the worst we can do. That's, that's going to indicate to the world that we have basically read the rules and we are choosing to openly ignore them. So you've got to do something, right? You've got to do something to demonstrate you are taking steps in this space. Well, some of the quick and easy steps you can start to take now is updating your contract paperwork. The question is with what, how much time is that going to take? And that often ends up leading to rounds of negotiations with that other contracting party. On the flip side, you can look at technological controls to build in that adequate level of protection. Of course, that's gonna engender a discussion with your IT team and your data ops team around how is this affecting our data and our functionality of our tools. But there ultimately are steps you can take today. And to sit on this webinar or any of the other webinars that have been released about Max Schrems and to walk away with thinking, Nah, there's not much I can do. I'm just going to wait until the court tells me more. It's probably not going to be me. That's the worst thing you can do. And I'm saying that as, a, as an attorney. I'm saying that as a friend. I'm saying that as a business advisor. You got to start doing something because simply sitting around and doing nothing will look worse if you are brought into a suit, whether it is you directly by virtue of one of your customers over in Europe or whether it's through one of your service providers or your key vendors, soon you are going to have to live in this world, right? Like I said at the beginning of the call, this is going to apply to everyone eventually, so there are steps we can start taking now. And what's even better for us in the United States is that U.S. data privacy law is a couple steps behind where it is in Europe. So the more steps you start taking today to deal with European privacy laws, the better you will be positioned to comply with local laws in your own state. You see here in the top yellow, we've got rules like the New York Department of Financial Services cybersecurity rule, right? It's got requirements around a CISO, a cyber sec programs and designated roles and responsibilities. 
Well, that overnight overlaps nicely with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, right, around different access controls and disaster reporting for public companies. We've got state breach laws. So every state in the USA has a breach notification law that has differing definitions of what data is at issue, how long you have to comply, who you need to tell, whether it is a news agency or the attorney general or the customers directly. We've also got this California Consumer Privacy Act, right? The big sexy one here in the United States that we've all been focusing on recently. Very, very GDPR-esque. It's not a straight copy, but you can tell that the authors of the CCPA learned a thing or two from the authors of the GDPR. And so there are similar sorts of rights and requirements around risk-based approach to data protection, actually giving rights to data subjects, things around a right to access data, a right to have data deleted. Now, this only applies to businesses in California, but again, by virtue of the economic market in the United States, by virtue of the network of suppliers and service delivery parties that you are presumably doing business with, right? You may have data up on an AWS bucket, up in the cloud on Azure, you may have email provided by different service providers, MSPs, what have you. These rules and requirements are gonna to start to flow their way through the supply chain. And so you see how all of this overlaps with the GDPR. That is not by casual mistake. That's because the authors of the GDPR sat down and thought about this years ago. They tried to make a rule that would incorporate new technologies and try to build rights into those new technologies. Naturally, legislators around the world are learning from that experience. And for those of you that are on the call that have joined us internationally, don't think you're off the hook here. Brazil and India are two big examples of countries that have national privacy laws very similar to the GDPR, and there are new laws coming out every day. So I'm gonna kind of dial down into the CCPA because that's really my bread and butter. I have read that law to no end backwards and forwards. In fact, I read it so much I wrote a book on it because I wanted to help make it a little bit more sensible and easier to digest. So what is the CCPA? It's the California Consumer Privacy Act. And it came about in 2018, much like the GDPR through kind of a funky and weird legislative history, but it's the rule today. It actually came into force in January of this year, and it has started to be enforced since this summer. So again, if you're sitting there going, CCPA, what is this? I never heard of it. You're a couple of months behind the party, but we're glad you've joined us. We're happy to show you how it's not rocket science, but it is complicated, and it takes a little bit of effort to sort through all the rules and requirements. So much like the GDPR, there are jurisdictional limits on what type of business actually must comply with this law. And like I said, similar to the GDPR, it's gonna involve a little bit of territory. If you are physically located in California, you gotta comply. If you are collecting the data of California residents, you gotta comply. The issue for most people is they're gonna say, well, I'm sure there are some California residents data in my database, but I don't know exactly how many and who, and where specifically to deal with these rules. Well, in that case, you might have to do it with everybody in your database, right? Because this rule technically only applies to the data of California residents, but unless you can apply it specifically, it may be more of a technical headache than it's worth. So what is required? What do you need to do with these people and their data? Similar to the GDPR, you need to understand what you're doing with their information, right? What data do you collect? Who do you give it to? Why are you using it? How is it being stored? Where does it go? So understand those data flows and then start to build security across those flows, make sure everything is adequately protected and build in place a mechanism to respond to verifiable consumer access requests or using the parlance of GDPR, data subject access requests, right? So people call in or they email in and they say, can I get a copy of my data? Where is it stored? Can I have my data deleted? You've got all the ways to actually respond to those compliantly. And to that end, you've got to facilitate a broader number of consumer rights, most of which directly relate to transparency. So it's basically about telling people what you do with their data so that they can deal with you or not. So how are these two laws related? 
from a theoretical level, they're very similar in that they both expanded the scope of what's at issue, right? They, they broaden the scope of the type of data we're worried about, the type of processing activities that we worry about. They broaden the scope of consumer rights. So like I said, really sort of level set that balance and scale a bit more in the favor of consumers. For those of us that are consumers, that's good. But for those of us that are running a business, that can sometimes put us at odds because now we've got to deal with all these consumer rights and requests, right? And we have to manage them all sensibly in a cost-effective way. And so to that end, much like the GDPR, there are various notice requirements under the CCPA where we have to have a privacy policy posted online that says certain stuff. So in summary, Right, there's a lot of areas of overlap between the GDPR and CCPA. You see some of them on the slide, but the main high-level takeaway, guys, is that there's a lot of overlap between the GDPR and invariably what other local law you have to deal with. Because the GDPR is broad, it's expansive, it's all-inclusive, right? It's like a resort in Mexico. Once you're in, you're in. Well, everybody else is starting to pay attention, all of these other laws are picking up from lessons learned, both good and bad, from the, C from the GDPR, and they're building them into their own laws. The issue for us in the United States, the existential crisis that we all face, is that there is not just one of these laws that you have to deal with, right? There's 50. And until the federal government can get its act together and release one common set of laws across the entire country, we're left to deal with a patchwork or, or almost like a quilt of data privacy laws all over the country and all over the globe. Now, I'm optimistic in the federal government. I like to think that they would release a law on that, but it's certainly been a busy year and we haven't even reached the election. So my hopes aren't that high. And I know I'm speaking to other attorneys and cybersecurity experts around the country. We've sort of lost, lost faith that a law would come out this year. So maybe in 2021, we will see a USA version of the GDPR. Until then, we are left with all of these different state laws that have all of these different requirements. There are common themes, and it's easy for a privacy expert like me to pick up on those themes. But the question is, how do you pick up on those themes? And how do you build a compliance program that captures the themes, deals with local issues, and sets you up for success in the future if anything were to change, right? And that's kind of, like I said, the core issue is that all of these states have differing little nuances, whether it comes to their financial penalties, the timing requirements of who and where and how to report, or even how they define personal information. One of the new uh, exciting ones out of New York earlier this year is that they redefined their definition of covered information and they sort of split out the difference between personal information and sensitive information, right? So you can sort of see some other states adopting that approach where some set of rules and requirements will apply broadly to personal info, and then we'll have more strict requirements around sensitive info, like credit card details or biometric data. So again, always new developments in this space, constantly, constantly growing and changing. And you can certainly expect to see this as a topic probably in your local state races if you're having some this November. You may remember, like I said earlier today, California is actually having something called the CCPA 2.0 go to ballot this fall. So it's not an enhanced version of the CCPA. It's actually a wholly different version with different requirements and an adapted enforcement style. And that's going to go to voters this fall. So if that gets passed by the California, California voters, we're, we're gonna have a whole new conversation on the CCPA come December and January. So more to come on this topic. If you're sitting there wincing, please don't be scared because there are nerds like me that get excited by this stuff and we spend all day doing it because that's all we wanna do. So how can I help you, right? IT governance has a variety of tools and technology in this space. So one of the key things that we're really good at is conducting gap analysis work. We've been working with the GDPR and especially with European and British entities for years now, going back before this even registered on the USA radar. 
So we've got a good, sensible program for conducting gap analysis work where we can quickly tell you, here's where you are today in terms of legal compliance. And from there, we can give you an action plan or a project plan to actually get compliance, right? So of course, there's training to educate you on this topic. There's no shortage of written material and white papers that can help educate you personally or evangelize this message across your organization. But really, like I said, the gap analysis is often one of our first key steps here. And I'm told that for anyone that's joined us today on the webinar, so the lucky group that's here, uh, if you inquire about a gap analysis, you will actually get 5% off the price as just for participating in this webinar. And this is really kind of the end result of that gap analysis work, right? So this is a sample one that I prepared. But what we do is we go through 10 key areas of compliance, whether it's GDPR, whether it's CCPA, or whether it's privacy laws generally, right? We can do specifics or all of them. We'll go through and analyze your company posture, your current project status, your current program, and we'll determine that level of compliance and give you a score with actual iterated points that you can go through and fix to boost your score. And what's more is we put those points into a project timeline like you see here below, a little bit of a Gantt chart to help indicate which areas you would be best focused on in terms of your energy and attention and resourcing and which areas we can help you with to drive you towards a path to compliance, usually trying to get that wrapped up in a period of two to three months, right? So it's really trying to understand, hey, what do you need to do to comply with the law? Here is a list of action items. If you're interested, here's where IT governance can help. And here's the way we would suggest rolling out this action plan in order to get you compliant, concrete steps you can take today, right? You'll remember at the beginning of the webinar, I said that the GDPR is not really like a US law, right? It's sort of soft, it's squishy. It doesn't give us a list of things to what, a, a list of things to do, and, and it's more of a model on how to comply. Well, I've spent enough time doing this along with other folks at IT Governance, and we've put together an actual iterated list so that you can tackle it with some bullet points and give some action items to team members to go and get compliant as easily and quickly as possible. To that end, like I said, I'm not just here to do the fishing for you. I also want to teach you how to fish. So there are tools and technologies that we can offer that you can pick up and use yourself, right? If you fancy yourself a fisher, Grab a pole and hit the lake with me. I'll show you how to use them and we can teach you how to fish. So we can do some of the data mapping automatically behind the scenes with a data mapping tool. There are GDPR and CCPA privacy compliance toolkits to help put together things like privacy policies, the public notices, the subject access request responses and procedures. And what's more is once you reach a level of maturity in this space, Right? Once you've gone through that project and you've determined that you think you are compliant, you're ready to go, you can start to assess yourself more fully and ratchet things up, button things down on the rest of your IT security space so that even if you are ready for the GDPR and CCPA today, you will be ready for the law in Idaho tomorrow or Rhode Island next week right, or Connecticut, or Florida, or Texas, or Washington, or wherever it is. So with that, that's pretty much the end of my scheduled agenda and topics for conversation. I'm opening the microphone now to questions and comments, so if you've got questions, please do send them in, and I'll go through and address them and get started here. One of the first ones I've already received, just to get us thinking, is what is the realistic likelihood of getting in trouble under the GDPR? Ah, the million dollar question. So I appreciate the person who sent that in. Uh, you ultimately cut to the chase here, right? What is the chance that you're actually gonna get in trouble if you sat here, listened to this and said, you know what, I'm gonna ignore it. I can't necessarily give you a percentage, right? I can't necessarily tell you how likely it is that you're going to get hit. Kind of similar to saying, hey, we're about to climb over the trenches in World War I. I can't tell you how likely it is you're going to be shot, but I can tell you there's bullets flying everywhere. And what I would tell you from my experience now doing this work for a number of years is that don't necessarily focus on the idea that you are going to get caught or not caught. 
I find that to be a very American sort of cultural approach to legal compliance. The idea, the risk is not getting caught. The risk is getting caught with your pants down, right? Because I can tell you realistically, what are the chances that a European court sends a regulator over to your office? It's probably pretty slim. What's more likely to happen is that one of your business partners is going to come to you asking questions about this, and you will not be in a position to respond. Best case scenario, you look foolish. Worst case scenario, you actually hurt your business in terms of a lost bid, a customer or supplier who pulls a contract, uh, or, or even potential liability coming directly from end users and data subjects, right? If you don't have a canned response ready to go, they might just turn around and refer you to a regulatory authority in the EU. And then it's not a matter of that regulatory authority hunting you down. They already got a complaint sitting in their inbox saying, hey, go look at these people, right? So what I always tell people again is don't try to focus on what you think the, the risk is in terms of getting caught. Think about the risk in terms of getting caught with your pants down. All of you that have participated in the webinar today, you're business professionals running a professional organization and to that end, you want that organization to run smoothly, efficiently, and like I just said, professionally, right? You wanna make sure that all your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted. And so as more and more European companies, customers and suppliers are asking about this so that they can protect themselves from legal liability, they're going to start to ask their American partners with increasing levels of scrutiny and due diligence. And you need to be prepared. So whether, like I said, that's signing up for an RFP, filling out bid paperwork, perhaps you are in the process of going through a corporate acquisition and uh, there's a little bit of due diligence coming from you. It could also be that you are being requested by your own shareholders and business partners to comment on this, because as is often the case, when there is landmark legal rulings, companies that have the money, that have the wherewithal, and that have the foresight, often get out in front of these issues and they start to protect themselves and draw a moat of liability around them. So they start to reach out to their suppliers and partners and say, I'm sure you've heard of this issue. Tell us what you're doing to protect us in that space. So like I said, by the time you receive that questionnaire, you are already expected to have an answer. It's not going to be appropriate to say, well, give us a couple months and we'll get back to you, right? You want to make sure you know what you're doing today. What's your plan going to be tomorrow? And then you can get back to the focusing on the things that keep the lights running, right? The sales and marketing activities that ultimately pay the bills here. So that was a good question. I appreciate that one coming in. That's always often what people want to know is how likely am I going to be cost? I, I can't really tell you, but I can certainly tell you that your partners and your customers are going to ask you presumably long before regulators. And the problem is you want to make sure that you give them good, happy answers because they could turn around and call the regulators on your behalf. Thank you for listening to the ITGP podcast. Please check back regularly for new episodes. You can also find us for your weekly updates on all social media platforms, including LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For all product information, you can find us at www.itgovernancepublishing.co.uk.